We're going to begin in Matthew uh, chapter 1 and read uh, really Matthew's account of the whole birth narrative uh, beginning in chapter 1 verse 18. And Samuel's going to read for us. So go ahead, brother. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Thank you, brother. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, 
Your words are life to us, and though we hear this story often, let us not assume we understand its claim on our lives. Indeed, it makes a fresh claim on our lives each time we go there. So we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, call us in our hearts to that which you would have us to be and do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Chrysalis is the metamorphosis of a caterpillar into a butterfly. What happens inside a cocoon, basically, is called chrysalis, and it's frankly amazing. One creature becomes a completely different creature. A a caterpillar is essentially a stomach with legs. That's what a caterpillar is. It climbs around on leaves, eating and filling the stomach and constantly digesting. And... um, it, it does nothing but consume. Uh, a butterfly spends its life pollinating plants in order that they might flourish and reproduce for future generations of butterflies. But during this transforming stage, this chrysalis, uh, which takes them from the old to the new, the caterpillar eats and digests itself. It literally eats and digests itself, eliminating all but just a handful of cells. And then from what remains, uh, it's transformed into an entirely different being. It forsakes its old identity to become its new self. Christ came into the world to make all things new. But what we discover is that, as with chrysalis, there is a process, a consuming process, so to speak, a transforming process, But it's often also a difficult process, indeed a disturbing process. In the coming of Jesus, God makes himself known. The the revelation of God in Jesus is the clearest and greatest and most perfect revelation of God that exists. Um, We are, are finite, and when the infinite God reveals himself to that which is finite, his finite creatures... It disturbs us in, in some real ways. It's transforming, and it is indeed risky. So this morning, I want to just explore that birth narrative that we heard read under three headings. The first, the coming of Jesus is disturbing. Second, the coming of Jesus is transforming. And third, the coming of Jesus is risky. Well, let's begin under that first heading. The coming of Jesus is disturbing. Now, I didn't say that. We read it right in the text, and we'll look at that momentarily, but... When the fullness of God is revealed in the coming of Jesus, it disturbs everything and everyone. For those grasping for power, it created fear, such as Herod. For the complacent, it created instability. And even for humble Mary and Joseph, it completely upended their lives, their dreams. So when Herod heard the rumor that the Messiah, God's promised good king, had been born... He was disturbed, we read in chapter 2, verse 3, and all Jerusalem with him. But honestly, you can't read the story and not think that Mary or Joseph weren't disturbed too. I mean, you just have to walk through it. Uh, An engaged young girl who hadn't been with her husband finds herself pregnant. I mean, you talk about expectations going down the toilet. Like, seriously? And, And we know from Luke's gospel, her response was commendable, but we... But we shouldn't think for a moment that it didn't upset her apple cart. And as we see clearly in this text, Joseph was quite disturbed the moment that he found out that his wife was pregnant. He's, Joseph was a diligent observer, observer of God's law. 
And so his own obedience to the law was something that he was uh, looking at, but, but then he was merciful in his application of law toward others, which so Joseph's a great model for us to look at. He, he's not going to marry a woman who, by all outward appearances, had been promiscuous with a capital P. I mean, that, as he's looking at the situation, uh, I'm sorry, can't marry her. I'm going to obey God's law, and, and, and he, that's not going to happen. And yet, on the other hand, it's clear that Joseph wasn't a fundamentalist. Instead of throwing Mary under the bus, under the full punishment of the law, instead of seeking to have her stoned or even shamed publicly, he determined to divorce her in as gentle and kind a way as possible, with the least amount of shame. And just for the record, betrothal, unlike our modern engagement, it required a divorce to break the betrothal. So it's engagement, but it requires a divorce to actually get out of the engagement, not just the marriage itself. And so that's why he had to go through this. But again, he doesn't throw the full weight of the law at Mary. He does everything he can to make this as kind and gentle on her as possible. Of course, that's all interrupted by a dream, uh, which we should expect because, of course, his name is Joseph. And that his, the one, his namesake was a dreamer as well. And, and so, Joseph has a dream, and that, that changes everything. But again, his hopes, his dreams, are radically altered. And the uninvolved families in the region of Bethlehem, I mean, they, they may or may not have been aware that there was even a birth that took place that night. They're, they're oblivious, uh, it, it would seem, to that kind of thing. But they are swept up in the conflict between good and evil. The, the children, the, the boys from two years old and under are killed. And so they are disturbed, no doubt. When our lives are disturbed, it brings uncertainty. We don't like uncertainty because uncertainty requires faith. We like to be in control of things. We, we like to, to know what's going to happen, we're, we're, that we are secure. Karl Barth said that when the sun rises, all other lights go out. Well, sometimes we don't want to turn them out. We like, we like the light that they're giving us. And so the sun may rise, but we keep trying to live by these other lights. We've grown accustomed to the way it was. Every nation of the world, according to Romans 1, has been given light at some level. They've, 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 God has made himself known in, in ways to them. But they've all responded in various ways to that light. But in Jesus, the need for all those other lights goes away because the full sun has arisen. We, we all develop ways of understanding ourselves in the world to process what we experience. But when Jesus comes, making God known, it calls us to put, uh, to put out that way of understanding ourselves and begin to see by a new light. It changes everything about us. Jesus' coming didn't just disturb the Herods of the world or even the disinterested. It disturbed everyone, and it intends to disturb us all in some way. But this disturbance is necessary for our own good, which leads to the second heading, the coming of Jesus' transforming. The coming of Jesus disturbed everything because it intends to transform everything and everyone. The purpose wasn't to disturb people per se, but to make everything new. Like that caterpillar is required, the old has to be removed before the new can come. He has to literally digest himself if he's going to become that, that butterfly. Well, that new thing 
that God works in us is determined in large degree by our response. Now, it will be new, to be sure, but how we respond will determine what kind of new we, we, we receive. For Mary and Joseph, it changed everything. The new was, well, undoubtedly good. I mean, they had Jesus. Um, but it was at times also sorrowful. Expectations burst, becoming refugees, fleeing for their lives, watching her son be crucified later in life. For Herod and his pursuit of power, it changed everything. And the new wasn't, well, it was not good. It was a threat to his throne, or at least he didn't perceive it as good. It was a threat to his own son's futures, if this is indeed the king of the Jews. Now, since we like stability, and we know how to process things, we, we've got our way of it, dealing with everything we have. We run it through our grid. We, we like things to remain the same. You, you start changing that, we get upset because now I don't know what to do with things. It's, who knows where things are going to be? Like, you plan your retirement and you got everything in order, and then all of a sudden the stock market crashes right at the wrong time. It's like, okay, well, that didn't work out like I planned, and all of a sudden everything's unstable. We like stability, but the reality is it's not always good for us because we resist what is new. I, I tend to resist what is new. I like, I like stable, okay? And, and yet God upsets that sometimes so that he can do a, a, a work in us. John puts it this way in his gospel. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. When we resist the new, it's maybe because... Sameness feels safe. Our deeds are evil. We don't want to risk exposing them. And so we resist that which is new. But Christ wants to create something new in each of us. What, what is the new that Christ wants to create in us? How is it that He wants to transform us? When we look at the life of Jesus, I think we can catalog many things. Uh, a short list among those would be he makes whole what was missing. He enables us to walk where we could not walk. He enables us to see what we could not see. He enables us to speak where we could not speak. He frees us from guilt and shame. He restores to us what was taken. He enables us to stand upright. And we could go on and on with the various miracles and things that he did. But then we get to the writings of the apostles, the letters, uh, uh, if you will. And we discover that greed is transformed into generosity. Lying is transformed into truth-telling. Stealing is transformed into giving. Rage is transformed into peace. Biting and devouring one another is transformed into building one another up and encouragement. Lust is transformed into love. Bitterness is transformed into forgiveness. Arrogance is transformed into humility. And I've just scratched the surface. We could go on and on and on. What is it for each of us that needs to be made new? The coming of Jesus offered then and offers today newness of life. 
The best work of God in our lives, or the best works of God in our lives, are often down the most difficult paths. This requires faith to follow Jesus in the path toward newness of life. And so that third heading, the coming of Jesus, is risky. When, when God reveals himself to us, it calls us to take risks. Abram had to believe the promise, leave everything he knew, and go to a place he knew nothing about. And it was many years later that he received the promise. Many years later. God reveals himself to Joseph in a dream, and it was risky telling his brothers and eventually his father about it. It, it turned out to be both, both costly and the way God saved them all. Since God's coming in Jesus Christ reveals God most clearly, it requires the greatest risk. For Mary and Joseph, it threatened their very lives. I mean, they were running from Herod to save their lives. Often, God disturbs our lives to cause good to come from them. Like that caterpillar's life. It's completely upset. And from the caterpillar's point of view, it's extremely risky. I mean, in truth, it is very risky. Think about it if you're a caterpillar. Out of the thousands of steps in the process of that transformation, all it would take is just one of them going slightly wrong. One of them. And it's just a dead caterpillar. It's never a butterfly. I mean, the miraculous nature of all of that, that all those processes, that all of that works and goes on should amaze us because... That it does it once, much less virtually every time, is utterly amazing. If caterpillars had a choice in the matter, no doubt, many would say, uh, no thanks. I mean, I don't know what it's like to be a caterpillar, where you're just eating all the time, like that's all you do. But I can't imagine that one might get used to that and find it quite comfortable. <laughs> and, and so... You know, hey, how about this? How about you digest yourself and like everything you are now is gone? Well, leave a few cells. And then you become this amazing other creature. And you're like, can we go through that one more time? I, no, I think I'll pass. Well, the difference between us and caterpillars, they don't have a choice. We do have a choice. And sometimes we dig in and refuse to change. One author puts the problem this way, and he's speaking about Christian leaders. He says, I'm alarmed at how many are allergic to doing the hard work of looking deep within to discover their true selves and upward to God, his unique blessing on their lives. Why are we so mistreated? I'm sorry, why are we so resistant? Well, because on the front end, it looks like death. It is life indeed, but it looks like death. Matthew 25, you're familiar with the parable, as it's called, of sheep and goats. It talks about the risk we encounter when Christ is revealed to us. The response of both the sheep and the goats, when Jesus said, Jesus says, when I was hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked, sick or in prison, you either did, or in the case of the other, you did not, Respond by giving food and drink, inviting in or clothing or visit me. And, and all of their responses began with this. When did we see you, fill in the blank, and either and fed you, etc., or 
and did not feed you, etc. But it begins, when did we see you? What's the difference between the two groups? One was willing to take risk based on God's revelation of himself in Jesus. One's willing to take risks based on how God has revealed himself in Jesus. Because as God has revealed himself in Jesus, when I see the hungry, I feed them. When I see the thirsty, I give them something to drink, etc. But that's risky. When we see people in any of those described conditions, we're faced with a risk. If one wonders what it would be like to have encountered Jesus in the flesh, whether as a baby or as an adult, Jesus seems to be telling us that it's a lot like encountering the hungry or thirsty, a stranger or one who is not clothed, the sick or the imprisoned. When we see in them a coming of Jesus, so to speak, it calls us to take risks. It's risky to feed the hungry. It's risky to invite a stranger into your home and show real hospitality. I mean, I received, I just saw this morning, received an, an email from one of you um, about 17, uh, actually, more, I think it's a, a, more than that, but a, a number of Afghan Christian families who are in the threat of death under the Taliban and only need sponsoring families to welcome them in to the U.S. and a lot of other things that will help out, but that's risky, right? And it's also transforming. If, if we want the transformation, you have, we have to take the risk. But that's one of those opportunities that is risky. It's risky to visit the sick or those in prison, especially for their faith. And if you're visiting somebody in prison for their faith and you're doing it as a Christian, well, you, you run the risk of staying in jail when you show up if they're there for the same faith. Now, there's a name that we've given, that the Scriptures have given to this risk. It's a word that we use to describe this risk, and it's what we call faith. Faith is that risk we take to live in accordance with what God has made known to us in the coming of Jesus. Faith is required to listen to the wisdom of Jesus, whose wisdom seems so radically different from the world's. Faith is required to forgive people their offenses and treat them as if they had not done them. Faith is required to endanger ourselves for the sake of others. Faith is required, like the Magi, to disregard Herod's wishes and go another way. Faith is required to open our treasures to him. Advent is all about the coming of God. There are technically three comings of God that we celebrate. The first is the coming of God in Jesus. The second is the one we, we hear, or at least the second one we hear most about, is the coming of God to rule incomplete, in total, the, the consummation, the second coming, as we call it. But there's actually a coming in between that we also celebrate, and that's the coming of God in the Holy Spirit, which is Christ among us. And that one, if you recall, on Pentecost, it required risk. I mean, think of the stories, I mean, not just on Pentecost, but throughout the book of Acts in which followers risked so much to follow Christ. But why? Because God came to them and transformed them. Suddenly, Peter, who was scared of his own shadow before, is bold and, and willing to suffer for Christ. The coming of the Holy Spirit is the one by which God will, or, or God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven in the present. 
the book of Romans likens the Spirit's transforming work in the world today to labor pains. The birth of a baby is, I mean, it's a wonderful thing, is it not? But it's painful and risky. And the painful and the risky part comes before the joyful part, you know. It's the way that works. And when Christ calls us to take risks, it might cause pain. And, and we, 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 we tend to wonder, how can what is painful be good? How can what is painful be good? But in reality, pain is actually essential. It's essential to life. Dr. Paul Brand, the physician who dedicated his life to working with leprosy patients, and is responsible for so much of what we know about the disease today, he insisted on the value of pain. He would have us consider an alternative world without pain. To make his case, he simply points to his patients. Damaged faces, blindness, loss of fingers, toes and limbs, all of which occur because of painlessness. Brand is the doctor who discovered that the disease leprosy simply damaged nerve endings so that the person doesn't feel pain. As a result... They never treat wounds. They don't blink since they don't feel. See, you're, you're, there are these pain sensors on your eyes that are just agitated enough every few seconds to cause you to blink. And if you don't feel that agitation, that pain, then you don't blink and you go blind. And, and so they, they actually developed, his wife developed a means by which they could cause the eyes to blink. Every, so they just had to chew gum all day and... And every time they chewed, their eyes would blink, and, and it kept them from going blind. And, uh, hey, I chewed gum for eyesight, you know. That works. Um, without pain, they don't pull their hand away from things that cause pain and so forth. Certainly, a, a world of pain is necessary for our very existence in, in some ways. Now, at some level, we must say that not all pain is a result of the fall. Not all pain is the result of the fall. Now, certainly some pain is clearly a result of the fall. God often calls us to do things that will hurt. They'll be difficult. We don't want the pain. It might be physical. It might be emotional. But when it is the result of our faith in Christ, it will produce good. It is risky, but it will produce good. Why does God involve us like this? I mean, couldn't he have just sent Jesus and solved everything? You see, Jesus isn't God's way of waving a magic wand for all the world's problems. Like, Jesus fixes everything. Well, yes and no. I mean, he's the start of the fix for everything. But that doesn't really understand what he was all about. He came as the true human, the first to live fully human, as God made humans to live, to be his image bearers. And Jesus calls us to follow him, which means to finish the job, to live as fully human in his image, to bring peace to the earth in his name. And we have a role to play. Another, that's why we have Pentecost, the, that other coming of God that we often skip over, but where the Holy Spirit comes, why? So that he can transform us into Christ's image and enable us to fill the role that God has for us. Essential to redeeming us 
is restoring us to what we were made to be. So he didn't just redeem us and, okay, you've been taken care of, that's that. No, he restores us to what he made us to be in the very beginning. So essential to redeeming us is restoring us to what we were made to be. Faith is that act by which we take the risk. It is that decision to live in the world based on God's revelation of himself in Jesus, despite the risks, despite the costs, despite the fear. Amen? The coming of God in Christ is risky. It's risky. Well, when we understand Christmas, we understand that Christmas is, yes, actually disturbing. It's transforming. And thanks be to God, it's risky, but it will bring about the change that God has for us. When God comes and makes himself known, it transforms everything and everyone. And to do this, it it must disturb us out of our complacency. To, To embrace that disturbance is to engage in the risk-taking acts of faith. And I I just want to encourage all of us this Christmas to ask how Christ's coming intends to disturb us, to ask how He wants to transform us, and what risks He's calling us to take to cooperate with His work in Jesus, to be restored as image-bearers of God in Christ. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Help us to see how the coming of Christ intends to transform us. And though that may upset aspects of our life, go ahead and upset them and change us. In Jesus' name, amen.